Well, welcome again to King's Cross. My name is Taylor, and I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met, it's wonderful to have you with us this morning. We have been here in a long series through the book of Galatians, a little letter that Paul wrote to a church that's in the New Testament. And this week we're in chapter 4, verses 11 through 20. <clears throat> For context and history, the Apostle Paul went on one of his missionary journeys and planted this church in Galatia. He built it on the foundation of the truth and the gospel, and things were going well. But not long after he left, some false teachers who he calls troublemakers came in, and they started to teach what was not true. They started to teach false doctrine, and it got the Galatian church off track. And to this point in Galatians, what we've seen is that Paul is making logical and rational and doctrinal and theological arguments against the false teaching to try to get them back on track. He's been appealing with them with reason and with logic, but what we started to see last week and what's gonna come to fruition this week is this shift from logical appeal to emotional appeal. Paul, this morning, takes off the professor hat and puts on the parental hat. In fact, he uses striking maternal imagery in this text as if he is a, a mother pleading with her children to come back to not turn away. He says twice that he is in labor for the Galatians. And then in verse 20 at the end, he says, I wish I could be with you in person and change my tone of voice so that you could hear the emotion with which I'm writing to you. I want to draw your attention to this before I read, uh, among other reasons, because I'm not great at uh, bringing out the emotion of a text in my reading of it. But I want you to hear and have eyes to see this emotional language in Galatians 4, 11 through 20. What Paul is going to bring out with this appeal what we're going to see, is three relationships in the text. One, the relationship between Paul and the Galatians. Two, the relationship between Paul and the Judaizers, or the false teachers, or rather the contrast between them. And third, the relationship between Paul and Christ. Galatians 4, I'll read verses 11 through 20. I am fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted, I beg you, brothers and sisters, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have not wronged me. You know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh, and you did not despise or reject me, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So then have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? They court you eagerly, but not for good. They want to exclude you from me so that you would pursue them. It's always good to be pursued in a good manner and not just when I'm with you. My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Have you ever, I'm sure you have, changed your opinion about somebody over time? Perhaps you meet somebody and you get more information about them or you become more acquainted with them and your opinion of them changes. This happens to me often in uh, fiction, in novels or in movies. Any story with good character development is going to cause you to, to change your view of somebody over time, right? So in particular, uh, this happened to me with the Harry Potter books. Now, I'm not going to give away too many spoilers because I know a couple of you are reading Harry Potter for the first time right now. But there is a particular character that through the first six books, I despised. And my disdain for this character peaked at the end of book six. I could not stand this character. And then I read book seven. 
and I got new information about this person. And I won't say that I finished the series necessarily liking this character, but I at least appreciated them. I at least understood them. I respected them to a degree that I did not at the end of book six. This has happened to me in, in real life as well. Um, six or seven years ago, <clears throat> my wife, Lindsay, had a high school friend move to town. And she said, hey, we're going to have this couple, she and her husband, over for dinner. As so we had them over to our house and we hung out with them and after they left, we did what married couples do, which is we talked about them and she said, you know, what did you think? And I said, well, she was great. Um, I, you know, he was fine. I don't know that we would ever really be friends, but, but he was fine enough. And of course, in God's good humor and providence, he became my best friend in Nashville over the course of the next year or two until he left. Although he did not find that story as funny as I thought he would when I told him <laughs> that the first time I met him, I didn't know that we would be friends. Of course, this can also go in the opposite direction. You might highly esteem somebody, but over time learn something about them that's devastating, that changes your view of them in a negative way. The Galatians, when they first met Paul, had a particular view of him that was starting to change. He tells us in the text that initially they gave him this wonderful reception. He went there and he preached the gospel and he planted the church. And in particular, he notes three things about their reception of him. In verse 12, he says, you have not wronged me. He's probably, even though it's, it's used in this tense, you have not wronged me, he's probably referring to the past tense of when he first came there. He's saying, you did no wrong to me. You're totally innocent in the way that you treated me. There was nothing that you did that I could complain about. This is sort of the, the opening statement about their reception of him. The second thing that he notes, verses 13 through 14, you didn't despise me, even though I had a weakness of the flesh that was a trial for you. So for context, Paul um, had some sort of physical ailment. In 2 Corinthians, he famously talks about his thorn in the flesh. And we don't know exactly what that was. We, that's a phrase that we sometimes use now, and we usually use it in a metaphorical sense, right? To refer to some emotional thing or relational thing. But there's good reason to think that he had a literal physical ailment. And here, he says this weird thing about, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me if you could. So lots of scholars think that he had some sort of ailment with his eyes, when he got to Galatia and was planting this church, there was some sort of physical problem with his eyes. And whatever it was, it was a trial for not only him, but for them. It made their reception of him difficult. It inconvenienced them in some way. And yet he says, nonetheless, you still received me lovingly. You were willing to be inconvenienced for me. Third thing he says about the reception of him, verse 14, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. What is this? It's, he's saying, I'm an apostle, I'm a messenger from God, I'm coming with God's word, God's message, and you received me as such. You gave me two things in particular. One, you gave me the honor that you would give to Christ himself or to one of his messengers. You honored me, and second, you listened to me. I came to you telling you I'm preaching God's word, and you received it, listened to it, as though it were God's word. Now, I want to just give a brief word. This isn't really the main point of this morning's sermon, but I think the text calls for it, a brief word on our posture toward leadership uh, in the church. We live in an age that is so cynical toward leadership and authority, and not for no reason. We've seen corruption at the highest levels of political office in our country and around the world. We've seen abuse and hypocrisy among church leaders, people who have formerly been respected, who have fallen. Uh, perhaps you have even been in a context like that. Perhaps you grew up with bad parents, or you've been under some 
uncaring and unkind authority. So we have good reason to be skeptical, but what should be the posture of churches toward genuine Christian leaders? I think that the Galatians give us a picture of it in their initial reception of Paul, but before I say it, I want to give you two caveats. One, uh, I'm not an apostle. We don't have any apostles at this church, and in fact, there are no more apostles the office of apostle was a unique position of authority in the early church that no, nobody today has the right to claim. The second caveat <clears throat> is I'm uncomfortable saying this. Um, it feels to me like it could be perceived as a bit self-serving to talk to you all about how churches should respond to their leaders. So I'm just going to throw that out there and ask for grace and empathy that you would understand that that this is a bit uncomfortable, and I recognize that it might seem a bit self-serving. But I think that the initial reception of Paul by the Galatians shows us that churches ought to honor and listen to their leaders. The New Testament tells us that church members are called to submit to their pastors and their elders. That's in 1 Peter chapter 5. Hebrews 13 says that we're called to watch the way of life of our leaders and imitate them as they imitate Christ. Now, this does not mean that church leaders are infallible. It doesn't mean that we're not sinful. I'm certain I've sinned this morning. I'm certain I've made mistakes this morning. We make mistakes both just personally and as leaders in the church, but this is about a posture. It's about the church and Christians and church members having a posture where they're willing to honor and listen to, submit to, not every personal opinion of the church leader, but church leaders as they're acting, standing on God's word in their office. And this is just so often not what we see. In a day and age where every single one of my decisions and every single one of my associations with people or groups is an opportunity for me to express myself, Right, So the clothes that I wear, the music that I listen to, the job that I work in, the church that I go to are all really just an opportunity for me to say, I'm the kind of person that would wear clothes like this. I'm the kind of person who would work a job like this. I'm the kind of person who would go to a church like this. And the second that our church leaders say something or do something that makes us uncomfortable, all of a sudden, it's no longer the kind of church that I want to be associated with, so what do I do? I fire those leaders by going to a different church that more closely associates and identifies with my personal self-expression. This is, not, this is not the vision or the desire that Christ has for the relationship between churches and their leaders. That every time a pastor or a leader says something that makes me uncomfortable or that I don't agree with, that they say too much or not enough about some political or cultural thing or or comment on what's going on in the world in a way that I disagree with, that I just bolt and leave and go find another pastor who agrees with me more. Again, this is not to say that we can't get things wrong, but what I would just plead with you and ask of you is when I mess up, when I disappoint you, when Clint, our other pastor here, messes up and disappoints you, when we together as leaders disappoint you, just come talk to us. Don't bail. Don't leave. Don't don't slander us on the way out. Just come and say, hey, I didn't understand that thing that you said in the sermon. It kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Listen, I get up here and talk for 35 minutes every Sunday. I'm going to say some things that are wrong, probably pretty regularly. Ask me about it. Say, can we look at scripture together? Can you show me why you said what you said? And what will probably happen is either 
you'll say, okay, I see that now. I get it now. We're on the same page. Or I'll say, you know what? You're right. I was wrong. I misspoke. That wasn't what I wanted to say. Or we might walk away and say, hey, we're not on the same page, but we understand each other. And it's okay. We can stay together because we don't have to agree on every single thing. Just as many in our day are quick to turn on their leaders, the Galatians were beginning to turn on Paul. We see this in verse 15. He asks them, where then is your blessing? That word blessing refers to the concept of somebody seeing another person as divinely favored. So I would look at you and see God loves you. You're, you're walking with the Lord. You are blessed. So when they first saw Paul, when they first met him, when he first came to them, they blessed him. They viewed him as one who was divinely favored. And Paul's saying, hey, before you viewed me in this way, you viewed me as a genuine messenger from God. What happened? Like things were going so well. I thought things were good between us. And now all of a sudden you're turning on me. You've revoked your blessing of me. Did they become more acquainted with him? Did they get new information about him? What they got was false information about him. The Judaizers, remember that's the, the technical term for the name of these false teachers, they were intentionally driving a wedge between Paul and the Galatians. Verse 17 says, they court you eagerly. They want to exclude you from me. He's saying that these false teachers are passionately pursuing the Galatians, right? They're going after them hard. They're, they're pulling out all the stops to try to get the Galatians to follow them. But in the meantime, they're trying to cut them off from Paul. They want to prevent access between them and Paul. This is, if you know anything about abusive behavior, you know that one of the first things that abusers do is they cut you off from people outside who can tell you the truth, who can tell you what's really going on. The Judaizers, the false teachers, weren't just misleading and teaching false doctrine. They were trying to cut the Galatians off from Paul. And that sets us up for the second relationship or really the contrast between Paul and the false teachers. There's three contrasts here that I see in the text, but before I, I dig into them, I just want to say what I hope that this gives us is a picture of the contrast between all faithful, godly, gospel teachers in the church and false teachers. If this is just a contrast between Paul and some people 2,000 years ago, who cares, right? It doesn't have anything to do with us. But if it gives us a picture for the difference between true teachers and leaders and false ones, then it can be helpful. So three contrasts between Paul and the false teachers. First, verse 16, Paul says, I tell you the truth. Implication, they don't tell you the truth. But the difference between Paul and them is that he tells you the truth and they don't. And what's the truth that Paul has told them? He's told them the truth of the gospel. It's what, he, it's what he's been reminding them of for three and a half chapters. The truth of the gospel being God's grace working through faith right? Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and not from your works. You can't contribute anything to it by what you do. And it's interesting. He says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Why would that make him their enemy? Because, of course, the truth is not always what you want to hear. You know that. You've been in a position where somebody's told you the truth, and, and it made you want to distance yourself from them for a few days, right? Or maybe you've told somebody the truth, and they've Rejected it. And in particular, we saw this last week. Remember, the false gospel of the Judaizers was promising comfort and an end to suffering. The Galatian Christians were trapped between the Jews on the one hand and Rome on the other hand. And 
And the Judaizers are saying, hey, just become a little bit more Jewish and you'll be welcomed here and you'll get Rome off your back. You'll stop suffering. You'll be more comfortable. And, and, and Paul's saying, no, you have to hold on to the gospel even if that puts you between a rock and a hard place. The truth can be offensive because it doesn't always lead to comfort. But the first and most essential mark of any true Christian leader is that he or she is rooted in the truth. And the Bible is the norm for truth. God's word, the scriptures. Um, this doesn't mean that, that every two true teachers will agree on every verse in the Bible, will agree on every single minute detail of biblical interpretation. Of course, that's not true. But what it does mean is on those essential matters, the, matter, the, the, the matters that, that matter the most, that the church has agreed on for 2,000 years, that there is a God and he exists eternally as a trinity, three persons, one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that, that Jesus Christ was fully human and fully God, and that he lived a perfect life in our place and died a substitutionary death on the cross, and that salvation is only by means of believing in that, the truth that all human beings are made in the image of God and yet are all corrupted by sin. These, the, the truth that the Bible itself is our ultimate authority on earth, all of these things, these essential matters, if anybody comes and teaches something that contradicts these, they're not teaching what is true. And here's the thing, you guys, we want to leave it up to the, to the people up front to tell us what's true and what's false, but it's actually the calling of the church to become so familiar over time with the scriptures and to become so familiar with the contours of the gospel that you just recognize, right? Just implicitly, when somebody's saying something that does not accord with biblical truth, you just get it, you know, right? Together, collectively, as the church. The second contrast between Paul and the false teachers is, he says, they court you eagerly, verse 17, but not for good. Okay, if they're pursuing you, courting you eagerly, but not for good, then what are they pursuing you for? Presumably, for their own benefit, for selfish gain. The false teachers are trying to siphon off Paul's disciples and add to their own following. Paul, on the other hand, was zealous for their good. He, in, in 2 Corinthians, which is another much longer letter where he's defending his uh, apostleship, he says at one point, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. True teachers, faithful teachers, are passionate about God's people for their good and for God's glory. False teachers are passionate about you for their own good and their own glory. And I think this is so relevant. Never before in the history of the church have you and I had access to more people who claim to be teachers in the church, and never before have people who claim to be teachers in the church had more access to us, right? And in a day and age where you can go follow a thousand of these people on Instagram after lunch, we need to be careful. Because every time that we like something, every time that we subscribe to something, every time that we stream or purchase something, the person on the other end of that like or stream or purchase stands to benefit from it. But they stand to benefit in particular financially from it. And that doesn't mean that certainly does not mean that every single person who has some sort of public ministry that helps them support their living, it doesn't mean that they all have bad motives, but it does muddy the waters a little bit, doesn't it? Like, it, I have, I've seen 
people cross the very fine line between, first, I am creating content for your good that I happen to benefit from, into the territory of, I have to keep creating content that you perceive to be for your good so that I can keep benefiting from it. That's a very fine line, and we can cross it without even noticing it. In this month's edition of The Atlantic, there was a long profile on Mitt Romney, the former presidential candidate and U.S. senator from Utah. And one of the things that he, he talked about in the interview, in the article, was the challenge of governing when it seems like the number one desire of every elected official is not actually to work for the good of their constituency, but to get reelected. And so from day one, elected officials, people who are elected by the people to govern, aren't actually concerned with governing, they're concerned with campaigning and getting reelected. They're working for selfish motives. And he asks the question, I thought this was so poignant and relevant, he says, do we weigh our own political fortunes more heavily than we weigh the strength of our republic and the strength of our democracy and the cause of freedom? What is the weight of personal acclaim compared to the weight of conscience? And I think we can tweak that question. And I need to ask myself as a pastor, and you should ask of me, and you should ask of any other self-proclaimed Christian leader that you follow, do we weigh our own ministry career more heavily than we weigh the strength of the church and the purity of the gospel and the cause of Christ? What is the weight of personal acclaim compared to the weight of God's glory? The third contrast between Paul and the false teachers, he says, verse 19, I am suffering for you. Again, in 2 Corinthians, <clears throat> Paul is, is defending his apostleship, and he gives this long list of all the ways that he's suffered. He says, five times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, <clears throat> I've spent a night and a day in the open sea, on frequent journeys I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing, not to mention other things, there's the daily pressure on me, my anxiety for all the churches. Godly shepherds are willing to, to suffer for the sheep. Godly shepherds are willing to suffer for the sheep. Listen, <clears throat> I can't empathize with Paul's long list. I've never shown up to church to get ready to preach and been beaten with rods by somebody. That's never happened to me. I've never been shipwrecked. I've never spent a day and a night in the open sea. But I can tell you that one thing on his list that I do empathize with, as he says, the daily pressure on me, my anxiety for the church. It is my privilege and my responsibility, and I speak collectively here for myself and Clint, it is our privilege and responsibility to know about the weight and the burdens that many of you are carrying. It is a, a beautiful privilege to be one of the first phone calls that some of you make when something is, is going on that's heavy and hard in your life. Uh, we don't, and I don't carry any of your individual burdens as heavily as you do, obviously, right? I may carry 1% of them. But collectively, carrying a little bit of all the burdens that we hear about is a weighty thing. It's a heavy thing. It's an anxiety-inducing thing. And I just want you to know, as your pastor, when I know you're walking through these things, I wish I could take them from you. I wish that you didn't have to walk through them. I wish that I could change your circumstances and make things better. 
And I carry that and feel that. But what I long for and hope for and pray for even more than that is that as you walk through those circumstances and carry those burdens, you won't lose your trust and your faith in Christ. That you won't stop following him. That you won't stop trusting in God's fatherly providence and care and provision for your life. That you won't stop being filled with the spirit. That you won't stop coming to church and just being together, and reading scripture, and praying. Ungodly leaders will not care about you like that. They won't suffer for you, right? Ungodly leaders who are in it for their own benefit will say, listen, I've got to work on the sermon. I've got to work on my communicating, right? I've got, we've got to blow up our Instagram account. We've got to, we've got to, we, I've got to work on talking because that's what I'm good at. Somebody else can handle all your messy stuff. Like, go, go pay a, for a counselor to do that. Go pay for a therapist to do that. Like, I don't have time to get in the mud with you. And not only that, ungodly leaders won't suffer for you, but they'll come along and they'll promise an escape from suffering. That's what we saw last week. But that's not the word of God. That's the word of Satan. When Satan tempted Jesus three times, one of the temptations was, Jesus, if you bow down to me now, I'll give you all the kingdoms in the world. Jesus was already going to get all the kingdoms of the world. He's the king of heaven and earth. That's what he came to secure, to accomplish. But he had to go to the cross first. What Satan was telling him was, if you bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and you won't have to suffer. You won't have to carry your cross first. That's what ungodly leaders want you to think. Godly leaders know, I can't promise you an escape from suffering. I can't promise you that you won't have to carry a cross, but I'll go first. Follow me as I follow Christ. In this way, and in all the other ways that we have seen this morning, Paul not only gives us a picture of a faithful Christian leader, he points us to the ultimate Christian leader, which is Christ himself. Jesus not only tells us the truth, he is the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. He said, in the end, the way to be properly aligned to truth is not to know all the answers. You may be here this morning and feel like, I'm, I'm so behind, I don't know all the answers. The way to be properly aligned to truth is to be in a relationship with Jesus. Truth is a person. He is truth. This is, this is why every week, by the way, we just dig into scripture. This is why our groups dig into scripture. This is why our kids are learning scripture back there right now. Not because we just want to fill our heads up with Bible trivia. Not because it's you know, good philosophical fodder or that it gives us therapeutic and psychological benefits. It might do all those things for us. But the primary reason we come to the Bible is because Jesus is in it. He is the truth beneath the truth. He's the one who gives life. He said this himself. He's talking to the Pharisees in the Gospel of John. He says, you pour over the scriptures because you think you're going to find life in them, but you don't know that they're talking about me. I'm the one who gives life. I'm the truth beneath the truth. Unless you see me in the scriptures, they won't do anything for you. But if you see me in the scriptures, you will know the truth, and the truth, as he said, will set you free. Second, Jesus is zealous for our good. Have you yet come to the heart-melting realization that Jesus came to earth and lived and was rejected and suffered and died and was buried to save you and that he had nothing to gain from it? 
that he had nothing to, it wasn't to his own benefit. It didn't add anything to him. We have no even category for this because all of our relationships give mutual benefit, right? I'm, many of you are some of my closest friends. Let's be honest. I like you, but I also am friends with you for selfish reasons because you add something to my life. And thank you for that. I appreciate it. We, even the way we talk about things, right? You, we say that a, that a food is delicious. What we really mean is I like the way that it tastes in my mouth. You say that somebody's beautiful, and what you really mean is I'm attracted to that person. You say that somebody's funny, and what you really mean is I like that they make me laugh. We are the center of our own orbit. All of our relationships are mutually beneficial, but God is complete in himself. Do you understand that? That God cannot be added to or taken away from. He is complete in himself. He is, he is infinitely happy which means that nothing can add to or take away from his happiness. He is infinitely joyful, which means that nothing can add to or take away from his joy, which means that when he created us in the beginning, it must have not been to benefit himself. It must have been to benefit us, just to give. And when we stiff-armed him, when we rejected him and rebelled against him and turned away, and he came to save us, it must have been not for his own benefit, but for ours. And he did so at an infinite cost to himself. Jesus suffered for us. He became a man, and he went to the cross. Now, Paul suffered mightily for the churches that he planted and cared for, and I pray that if it is required of me that I suffer more for you all, that God would give me the courage to do so, but neither Paul nor I can go to the cross for you. No human leader can die and suffer for your sins. Only Jesus could suffer for you ultimately, redemptively. Only he was a fitting substitute, fully human, fully God, completely sinless, and totally willing to spend himself completely for us, for people who couldn't give him anything in return. That is free and glorious and beautiful, merciful love. If you have suffered under ungodly leaders, and some of you have, under parents or teachers or preachers or pastors, I am genuinely very sorry that that has happened to you. And it is a, it is a shame that so many in so many churches have suffered under ungodly and unjust leaders. When three and a half years ago, when my wife was pregnant with our firstborn it occurred to me that my greatest hope and prayer for my daughter was that when she came to understand the concept of God as a father, that that would not be a stumbling block for her. But that she would think, of course, it makes perfect sense that God is a father because my father is loving and gracious and kind and he protects me and he provides for me. Of course, not perfectly, but I have no hang up with picturing God as a father because I had a good father. That was my prayer. For her, And one of my prayers for you and for me as your pastor, one of your pastors, one of your shepherds, is that I would not be a stumbling block in any way to you receiving the authority of Christ. That you would never walk away from this church and think, I'm having a real hard time accepting Jesus as my authority because the authority figures in that church were so bad. My prayer is that that would never happen, but I will fail. And ultimately, it's, it's necessary that I fail because my job is not to point you to myself. 
It's to point you to Jesus. He is the good shepherd. Malcolm Geit, who's a poet and songwriter, wrote a poem called The Good Shepherd. It says, when so much shepherding has gone so wrong, so many pastors hopelessly astray, the weak so often preyed on by the strong, so many bruised and broken on the way. The very name of shepherd seems besmeared, the fold and flock themselves are torn in half. The lambs we left to face all we have feared are caught between the wasters and the wolf. Good shepherd, now your flock has need of you. One finds the fold and 99 are lost. Out in the darkness and the icy dew and no one knows how long this night will last. Restore us. Call us back to you by name. And by your life laid down, redeem our shame. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep.